You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. When I look back, I see one through line from that moment when I was seven all the way to now, which is my whole life's goal is to create a space that is safe enough to stay in the room. It's uncomfortable, but like we are strong enough to hold it. We're strong enough to hold this pain. We're strong enough to hold this truth. And that strength will set us free. That's Rabbi David Ingber, one of the most celebrated and respected spiritual leaders in America. I know firsthand the way David holds the pain and truth of others. He has held mine more than once. And as is so often true of those who have open, empathic, compassionate hearts, those hearts have been cracked wide open. As the man once said, that's how the light gets in. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. 
Tell me about the landscape of your childhood. Hmm. Well, I'm the youngest of four children. Youngest is kind of maybe funny. I'm, I have a twin brother, but we're two minutes or so apart. At least that's what they, they told us. I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island. My father was a, I guess, a, a refugee. He kind of came over from Germany in 1938. He was five. And he was uh, born to a, an Orthodox Jewish family from Berlin and made his way here and grew up in Forest Hills in Queens, New York, with his younger brother and met my mother. Uh, she was 16 when they met and they got married when she was 17 and had uh, my two older sisters, Bettina and Amara. And then we were born in 1969, but moved to Great Neck in 1971. So I grew up in an affluent suburb of New York. My father was a very well-known attorney in the real estate, real estate attorney, and well-respected member of, of our Jewish community, one of the founders and kind of engines behind the modern Orthodox Jewish uh, family that uh, we had in the community that we lived in. And uh, my mom was uh, worked at home. She was a homemaker. Can you describe for listeners who don't know the distinctions what it would have been like to grow up in a modern Orthodox Jewish home? It's a great question. I think that modern Orthodoxy, as opposed to Orthodoxy in general, kind of traditional Jewish observance, generally tend to be slightly and you know have an antipathy, a kind of tension with modernity. And so, traditional Orthodoxy, religion was paramount, and religion was and religious observance was deeply insular and deeply protective and parochial, right and in the 1900s, in the 19th century rather, in Germany, there was kind of a movement to integrate both modernity and science and all of these features of, of the modern life in some way with Orthodox Jewish life. And so modern Orthodoxy was decidedly this hybrid between deeply engaged in Jewish life, deeply engaged in what many would consider to be Orthodoxy and observance and, and all of the strictures and the rules and all of the, the culture of that but together with an intention with, and sometimes the tension, you know, which one in this tension, modernity and kind of being a typical American. So we grew up like that. We, you know, on the outside, we dressed like a typical American and uh, typical kids who lived in the suburbs. We didn't look any, on the outside, we didn't look any different than any of the other kids that we were growing up with. But we went to a school that had, you know, biblical studies and Talmudic studies and all of the religious studies and then we also ate kosher and we kept Shabbat in a very orthodox way, meaning no lights and no phones and, you know, the prayers on Friday night and going to synagogue on Saturday morning is a very, very big deal. And, you know, all the holidays. And so we kind of lived this dual life that sought synthesis, but didn't always achieve it. And that's kind of like what the orthodox, my orthodox milieu that I grew up with, uh, you know, we dated, but like we're not supposed to, we're supposed to date, you know, we dated girls and you weren't supposed to touch them. That was considered to be, you know, Shomer Degia. You're not allowed to touch someone that you're not married to. And so you can imagine, Danny, and you know this well, like you can imagine the tension between being, uh, you know, a kid who loved Depeche Mode and REM and all the great music and very involved in American cultural life, but also had this weird double life of being an Orthodox Jew. It didn't always work out. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting hearing you say all this because we grew up similarly in that sense. Um, and, I mean, I felt that tension tremendously because there wasn't a community around 
my parents and me, who were also modern Orthodox, we were sort of this modern Orthodox family plunked into a neighborhood um, that was a mishmash of many other faiths and ethnicities. And so I'm, I'm wondering where that tension lived in you, because, you know, I grew up and rebelled and sort of moved pretty far away from all that. You grew up and ultimately became a rabbi. Well, I had my rebellion, but I think that for me as a kid, I was always very, very connected spiritually to God. I used to talk to God all the time. I had a running conversation with God. God was my best friend. And especially because I experienced tremendous trauma in my first 10 years of life, I drew on that in a very deep way. Like I very much turned to God and prayed to God. Those were all true for me. And what was also true for me in terms of attention was that I also was, you know, I was an athlete. I was an avid. Sports were like, you know, my other religion. Like I lived in and breathed sports together with my twin brother. We were always out in the fields and always playing after school and playing in school is one of the ways that I, I used sports to navigate socially. Like, I, you know, I was, I was uh, uh, popular because I was a good athlete and so on. So the world of sports was, was also very much a part of that world, but also with girls and sexuality and all manner of just growing up and being a human being. And I think that the tension you know, came to full, full-on tension and rebellion, of course, around puberty and, and sexuality. But I also think that there was also a lingering sense of guilt because I think as a modern Orthodox Jew, at least for me, I never fully felt like we were as Orthodox as we should be or as secular as we should be. Like it never, nothing, nothing ever felt like it landed. Like, you know, my cousins who were much more observant, much more Orthodox, felt like they had a, a less tense life. And they, I was wondered, if we're, they were the real ones, the real Orthodox, the real observant ones. And then on the other hand, I also, you know, <laughs> I wasn't so involved in Jewish life that I couldn't imagine falling in love with a non-Jewish girl and <laughs> living a completely non-Jewish life in some way or a non-religious life. So I think that those tensions, we used to go on Saturday afternoons. I think once I hit puberty, my best friend Yitzi's father was a gynecologist. And their home was like a, like a five-minute walk from us. And on Saturday afternoon, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, after we had a religious lunch and sang our religious songs and really pined and yearned with my dad for, you know, for God and for love and for spirituality, we would walk over to his house where his parents were not home. And we were introduced to the world of inappropriate movies or inappropriate magazines, you know. So that guilt of like both, you know, the rebellion was there, but it also was held in tension with feeling like you were sinning when you were just being an average young boy was always there. And so there was never like, you know, I remember the song from Depeche Mode when I was a kid, like, you know, it's a, it's a sin. I don't know if you remember that song. It goes something like, um, everything I ever done, everything I ever do, it's a sin. As I look back up, right? It's like, as I look back upon my life, it's always with a, you know, sense of shame. I've always been the one to blame. So I kind of feel like the religious patriarchy and some of the attitudes of orthodoxy that were intention also were deeply scarring, I think, for healthy development. Mm. And so those, those are some of the places that I remember. I love everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, mind is, my mind is blown. You referred to a, a childhood trauma. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I was sexually molested uh, in camp when I was a seven-year-old and didn't remember it until I was in my uh, in my 20s and I then was I had a, a series of summers 
it began with that summer, but and then successive summers, I was um, physically abused by a number of counselors in camp over the course of, of three summers. Those experiences deeply, deeply affected me and, and left significant scarring that I then had to, to heal later on in my life. And, and when I speak of my spiritual connection to God or to spirit, that brokenheartedness was a deep, a deep imprint on me that then ultimately led me to, to where I became, as, what I became as an adult. Was it the same camp all three summers? No, it wasn't. What, what was remarkable, I mean, this is just crazy. I mean, it's just like, so this is a crazy thing. So, so I don't even remember half of the story until I'm in my, in my 20s, right? And so I remember when I remembered it, I was, it's a long story short, but when I was in my early 20s, I had become, I kind of fast forward with my story there a little bit because after high school, I went for a year to Israel uh, to study uh, abroad. And that's kind of de rigueur, something that a lot of kids who are in the modern Orthodox world will go to for a year of seminary to Israel. It sounds much more like a very serious year than what it really is. It's just an exposure to being away from your family before you go to college. And most parents hope that the kids don't become too religious and they just get religious enough so that when they do go to college, they don't, you know, you don't marry somebody who isn't Jewish. And it's just a chance for them to have an experience of learning intensively. And I basically came back ultra-Orthodox. Like, I went as a non-Orthodox kid who was going to go to college, and I come back after two years in Israel. And I am, like, full-on looking like my cousins, you know, when I was a kid. My cousins with the long, you know, dreadlocks and the whole thing. I look like a chassid. And then I go on this deeply religious trip for about uh, five years. And during that time, I really have a break. Like, I really have a break from reality. I go into mystical states and I wind up getting completely lost in religion. And I wake up five years into this and I realize that religion was essentially what I was using to cover over some really, really deep wounds in my heart and in my psyche. And so I begin this journey of healing. And the first thing I read and watch is this John Bradshaw character from the 90s, who is the father of the inner child work and the father of homecoming and healing the shame that binds you, all these really, really vital works that expose the American public to like, for the first time, to these really profound notions of, of pathology within the family and also how family systems work and all of this kind of business. And I just get turned on. And I wind up finding like one of the only people doing Bradshaw's therapy in New York at the time, 1992, 93, is a therapist out in Islip, Long Island. It's about two hours from my house in Great Neck. Like I have to go to the city. I got to go to Manhattan, then to go to Islip. It's a huge trip. And I go out there and I'm in the therapist's office and I'm doing this kind of deep meditative work with, with this therapist. And all of a sudden I retrieve this memory of being a seven-year-old in a camp called Camp Tagola and having a counselor. And this counselor, I remember him molesting me. Now, what I remembered before that event was that I remember that I had been beaten up. So one evening, I don't remember being in it, but I remember it from the outside, as it were. He was supposed to take me to the bathroom and to go, you know, every night I had to go to the bathroom. And instead, he winds up beating me up and the lights go on and the camp comes in and they save me and he gets fired and they take him away, right? That's the part I remembered, but I didn't remember the molestation until I was 23. I never cease to be amazed at what the psyche can handle. 
by which I mean what our psyches can push down, out of reach, until we're strong enough to handle whatever has been buried there. It's like we have these different memory baskets. David's memory of being beaten up is awful, but he's able to retain it. He has a certain amount of agency in that story. The counselor is fired. There are witnesses. But the sexual molestation? There are no witnesses, only a potent residue of shame that pushes that memory into a far distant basket where it remains for nearly two decades. It was just so painful, and not just in terms of social stigma, but it was just so painful. You know, that level of violation was just so intimate and so connected with the shame, the shame that children experience in those moments, because it's also wrapped up with connection. There was like a connection, or at least the way that these these often play out, is that you're you know young and absolutely vulnerable and trusting and open. And so it was a kind of a deep scar for me. And what was most what was most remarkable to me was that that in my family, and I have a very loving and courageous and strong family. They're remarkable people. And this never made its way into our collective identity and memory. Like it doesn't exist. Nobody wanted to talk about it. There, there's no there was no room to talk about it. Even when we do remember abuse and begin to talk about it, often those who love us find it hard to hear. And I think that's also part of the way that that fear manifests too, right? Is that we're we're so afraid to talk about something that makes us uncomfortable. We're so collectively averse to discomfort by nature. It's remarkable, right? Well, and it's also then this kind of merry-go-round of secrecy, silence, shame, secrecy, silence, shame, you know, round and around we go, and one feeds the other. Right. When I remembered it, it was deeply liberating for me to have had that secret, as it were, surfaced for me and to tell the truth about it. And it was actually, you know, I want to get ahead of myself in terms of how I became a rabbi ultimately. But that that moment in my life, it was when I left religion and then went on a journey for about a decade or so of healing that was catalyzed by my deep desire to not use religion or anything else as a way to cover over the necessary healing what what Jung and others have called like your legitimate suffering like the legitimate suffering that as a human being i needed to experience and heal so that when i did come essentially back to religion and back to some of these other things that i wouldn't use it as a way to cover up secrets such a powerful notion. I mean, we know that we use things to cover over what David calls our necessary healing. Some of us use drugs, booze, sex, the internet, busyness, distraction. I could go on. But David becomes aware that he's using religion as a means to cover over, to avoid that necessary healing. And that awareness takes him on a journey that ultimately brings him back to God but on very different terms. Can you talk a little bit about that decade and what that journey was, and then the decision to to go to rabbinic school and become a rabbi? Sure. I know many of your listeners, and certainly you're familiar with Alice Miller's book, you know, that was originally called Prisoners of Childhood, and then it was the drama of the gifted child. And I think that 
my own journey over the course of that decade was very much, I was living as a waiter in New York City. I kind of made a living as a waiter. I kind of worked at night. And during the day I was doing this deep work. I got very involved in, in yoga. I got very involved in Eastern meditation and other modalities of healing. You know, I, I just, you know, all of a sudden it was like, I was in New York City as a cornucopia of life, like I experience aliveness. And that was like my number one desire during those 10 years was to, to really reconnect with a quality of aliveness that I had known as a child that I had lost to some degree after these traumas and that I had lost also in my teens. And then certainly when I became a religious fanatic for five years, I was completely in the closet as a, as a human. And so here I, you know, I went through those 10 years of self-exploration and, and travel and, you know, I became like a bit of a spiritual dilettante. I sat in meditation retreats. I enrolled in massage school for acupressure. I was a teacher of Pilates, something like Pilates. I did a lot of these things over, you know, I could go through a whole list of them, but all of them were basically in some way in service of self-healing, self-discovery, self-empowerment, aliveness. Um, and so that's essentially the, the decade. It was it was a lot of experiences and a lot of healing. But one thing that I couldn't move away from was a, a spiritual calling. And I felt like the spiritual calling in everything that I was doing was calling me back to my religious tradition, but to see it and feel it in a way that was now informed by the things that I'd experienced in other places, you know, more meditation, more aliveness, more embodied approach to sexuality and to being a human, or just a much more liberal and open-ended way to, to be in Jewish life. That's essentially how it came back. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future it's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect purdue global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals these include associate bachelor's master's and doctoral degrees and certificates Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. When David is just two years out of rabbinical school, in 2006, he creates a community on the Upper West Side of New York City called Romamu. Today, Romamu is one of the most beloved institutions in contemporary Jewish culture, a welcoming, experiential, irreverently pious, intergenerational Jewish community that elevates and transforms individuals and communities into more compassionate human beings. Its doors are open to spiritual seekers and skeptics alike, sharing a path that celebrates our wholeness and provides practical, grounded ways to heal our brokenness. In other words, David builds a spiritual world on his terms, one that rises up from his own trauma his stops and starts, his healing journey. In Judaism, there is a Hebrew phrase, tikkun olam, which translates into repair the world. It's all we can try to do. For me, it was an amazing journey of retrieval. You know, we often speak about in the healing work, regression in service of the ego, where you go back to bring something forward. And I think that me going back to Judaism was a desire to go back and, and take what was really beautiful there and pull it through into my present reality. And it wasn't easy because in my 30s, I was still in this kind of fantasy bond, which is what some people call the way that we still look at our parents as gods. You can be in a fantasy bond with your religious tradition. Like, I think I was still thinking that Judaism was perfect and God-given and, and I was to blame, right? It's all, you know, I just had a 10 years of walking away and I was going to heal myself, but then I was going to come back and be Orthodox again. And I almost got caught in there. And thankfully, I tried an Orthodox rabbinical school that was modern when I tried coming back to Judaism in my early 30s. And luckily, I felt like I had a size 10 soul and a size 4 religious tradition, and it just didn't work. And there were enough blisters on my soul at that point. I said, nope, that's not working. And I left. And I'm lucky to have met my teacher, whose name is Rabbi Zalman Schachter. And when I met him, it was like a chiropractic adjustment <laughs> on my soul. Like I just felt like I met somebody who was in his, he was 80 years old when I met him and I was in my 30s. And he had already been through a Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox Jew 
who then found the counterculture of, of the 60s and had had done all of these things, but had created a very new age, open-ended, deeply spiritual, meditative, but liberal expression of Jewish life. And then when I met him in 2004, he ordained me. And two years later, I started this community in on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And that was it. And kind of like, you know, it's now 14 years since we started it. And and as you know, it's it's grown and we have more than one. We have one in Brooklyn too. And we started our own seminary yeshiva to train people and to engage people in this kind of more open-hearted, embodied Jewish expression. So David builds and makes his own home, spiritually speaking, which becomes a home to so many others. He marries his wife, Ariel, and they start a family. This might seem like an ending all wrapped up in a bow. But of course, that isn't how life unfolds. Not for David. Not for any of us. We got married in 2008, and we had our first child in 2009, there. And um, I think one of the most remarkable things is that the thing about secrets and the thing also about karma or, or whatever it is that we carry, whatever you want to call it, you know, our life pattern or the patterns of previous lives, whatever your belief system is, but like the structure of how experience imprints itself on us and how we are, we are, we're made by that. And we also bring who we are before that. It's like all of that stuff, like that stuff doesn't actually work itself out until it works itself out. We're not done. The thing about secrets is that we think that that not dealing with them is actually a useful way to make the issue go away. If we don't see it, it's you know out of sight, out of mind, or it's split off from us, it's shadow. But as Jung said and others said, it lingers. And it, someone I heard once say, secrets seep. You know, secrets seep. And so the family secrets that we carry and our own personal secrets that we carry will work themselves out the more awake we want to be. They'll just, we'll find them in our lives. We'll just see them kind of working themselves out in our life. Meaning it'll show up, it'll keep showing up as a pattern, it'll keep showing up. And I think that when we had kids, when Ariel and I had kids, it wasn't surprising to me in certain ways that that our eldest kid was going to have a lot of the energy uh, that I had as a kid. Mm. (laughs) And that I would have a chance to, to like try to meet that child in a certain way. Describe Bear for me. So Bear is um, our eldest child. He's uh, now 11 years old. He's um, charismatic, brilliant, highly verbal, what some people call twice exceptional, meaning like he's off the charts in terms of his intelligence. And he's also off the charts in terms of his extreme sensitivity, emotional sensitivity. He has a number of uh, learning challenges that he's working with, that we're working with with him, dyslexia and other things. And he is, he's bare. <laughs> he's a bear. Off the charts. Bear is off the charts in ways that would be a huge challenge to any parent. Bear is the oldest of three. There are two even younger children at home. So what have the last few years been like for you as a family, contending with embracing the challenges that Bear has presented? They've been very, very difficult for us, you know, for the last, uh, since, since I guess, around two or, two or three years old. We, um, we realized that there were some issues that were happening that had to do with impulse control and, and his own kind of emotional regulation issues. Frustration 
you know, being very high and frustration moving from being frustrated or being sad or disappointed into anger. And um, I think that we as, a, as parents were so prepared and so excited and so felt so blessed and we still do. But I, I think early on we were, we realized that we, um, something wasn't working and we were completely in the dark. And we tried our best to make sense of what some of the things that were happening and it was really, really hard. Nobody really understood fully what was going on and we struggled. I, I think that someone once said that it was a struggle to keep the house safe and it was very hard to get Bear to go to school in the morning. It was very hard to get him to go to bed at night. We were reading up on oppositional defiance disorder and ODD and, and all the other various, you know, labels and, and nothing exactly fit and, and we were just beside ourselves because this is our first child and, and, and all parents, you know, your, your first child, you want, you're, you're just getting your feet under you as a parent. So you just want to feel like you know what you're doing. And, and we, we were working so hard, you know, we read so many books on it and we'd all done so much work on ourselves. And here we were really stymied by this soul and trying to figure out how best to parent and how best to be with him. And the number of theories and the number of approaches were, were legion. I mean, you know this too, right? And it's like everybody has an idea on how to help and what the right approach is and should, you know, are you being too lenient or you're not being lenient enough or how you make boundaries and, and you know, everybody's got an opinion about parenting. And we, we struggled. We were being shamed by many people. Uh, people shamed us for and blamed us, assumed that it was our fault that we must have done something wrong or we're not, you know, parenting appropriately. And so we, we, we struggled and we, and we couldn't really tell anyone. It was a very close group of people that we did tell we were struggling with but it was that was that compounded the problem because we we didn't know what was going on and we couldn't share how confused we were or that it was even happening for that matter right and meanwhile you have two younger kids at home right and then we had two other kids exactly yeah eventually and you also it's coinciding with this astounding growth of romamu and you meaning more and more to more and more people as a rabbi, as a pastoral rabbi, as a kind of, you're not going to like my saying this, but like rock star kind of from the bima, you know, from the podium rabbi uh, with incredible, powerful charisma. And this is happening in your home. How did you contend with that, that sort of split between deeply private and very public? It was hell. I mean, it was hell. I can just say it was at the time in my life and where I felt I had spent so much of my life's energies being able to trying to arrive at a place in my, in my life and in my career where my desire to serve, my desire to shine, my desire to, to give my gifts to the world or, and have them received. It was all happening. And leaving the house every morning was my, my whole nervous system was completely shot. Like every day was three days. It was the morning was one day. Then there was my work day and then my evenings. That's three days. It was a 21 day week. And on top of that, on top of that, my public life required me and the people who listen to this know this of your clergy, of your ministers and priests and rabbis and imams and so on, that it required me in any given day to be at the deathbed, at the bedside of somebody who's dying of cancer, who's in their prime, the tragedy of that, to move from that into dealing with the joy of a wedding couple, to move from that into, into the responsibility to write a, a, a stellar sermon 
or something that involves really, you know, analytical thinking and, and eloquence and communication. Like the responsibilities of my job were immense on every level, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And on top of that, to go home and to feel like that it was almost impossible for, for me and my wife to create a home environment that was safe for everybody. And, and we had little kids. And so people in the community started to murmur, you know, why can't we, why aren't we being invited over the, uh, you know, to the rabbi's home? You know, what do we do? So we were in a cash money too, because we couldn't ask for the support of the community because it's one of those things that as a pastor, as you know, as a therapist, like it's not a reciprocal, we're not an even relationship. It's not like, you know, and when it's happened, by the way, the community hasn't always received it. The community looks up to you as a father figure, a mother figure, uh, an authority figure, there's all of this happening. And so you don't tell them what's going on in your private life. And yet it can't not impact your public life. And then you can't even get the support of the community that you founded. I founded because that's not the role that they play with me. And it's part of this circle, this double bind. And so it was depleting and exhausting and enervating. And those are hard years. Yeah, those are hard years, you know, very hard years. So, how did those hard years come to a head or how did you come to you know sort of the next chapter in this story for you i mean i think the, the next chapter began when we acknowledged like like the good 12 step first step we acknowledged that there was a problem that we couldn't fix it on our own we started to talk about it and we realized that it wasn't because we were bad parents and we didn't have to be ashamed. We could we could seek help. And we did seek help. I mean, we worked hard on ourselves to learn how to be the parents like he needed us to be because he's so unusual. And we had to change and we had to grow ourselves and we had to get a lot of support and we were still figuring it out. But we are getting help. And even though things are at times still very hard, we do definitely see things getting better. I guess what's most important is that we talk about it with each other and with others. And in our family, we talk about the hard things and the big feelings, and we work hard to make it safe to sit with what feels uncomfortable. We see that that's really where the healing comes from. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. One of the things that I think is so beautiful and remarkable is that journey from I have to keep this a secret or I have, you know, I have this role in people's lives to you're talking to me, you're talking to us, to these listeners which means that you have spoken about this with your community. You, you did reach a point where holding it close, keeping it secret was more painful than not. Was there a turning point or was it a gradual thing? I think that what happens, what happens in our intimate spaces, what happens in our homes, right? What happens in our homes, what happens in our in our own home, in our own heart, what happens, you know, when the lights are closed and no one's watching, is a real earmark. It's a real, it's an indicator for our, our society at large. And I know for myself, not just as a public figure, but just as a human being, and I don't, I'm not advocating for us to, to tell the whole world every secret that we have, and there are things that are, that are obviously intimate, and there are things that should be shared only with a group of people that are, you know, our intimate family, our intimate friends, and so on. But the energy that it took for me to not acknowledge the impact of something, right? To not disclose, to not tell, to not share, and to be vulnerable about like what I was holding and how it was impacting me, and by extension, how it was impacting my community. It was too great, it was too great to hold that. It was too much. It was, it was literally, physically, I could feel it in my body. I couldn't take it anymore. And it was impacting everyone. So for example, a couple, you know, this past year, Romu, I'm very proud of this in our Jewish community. Romu became the first synagogue to ever have a Shabbat of the child. And on the Shabbat of the child, which was co-sponsored 
with the Center for Child Abuse and for Domestic Abuse, I spoke publicly for the second time, but really for the first time in a real way about my own experiences as a child. And the number of people that wrote to me afterwards who shared with me their story was just, it was just, you know, it was unbelievable that I could, in some way, for them to hear me as a rabbi speaking from the pulpit about my vulnerability, my wound, that, you know, for them to be able to say, yeah, me too, like him too, he, he has it too. And to become fluent in that way of sharing the depth of our power, which is also the depth of our wound, right? That, that that wound was there and that I could share it. I think that was for me a very, it was liberating for me. And also when it comes to this family secret, as it were, that it was very liberating to just to say, you know, this is what it looks like in our home daily. You know, I don't want your sympathy per se. I just want you to know how hard it is. And it invites a kind of generosity. Like the danger, of course, is that it might invite a, a scarcity. It might elicit in somebody else a feeling of awkwardness, as we said. They might shame us. They might walk away. They might do whatever they're going to do. The things that they, they, they might say, do some of the things that we're most terrified they're going to do, right? But it also, when we close ourselves off because of that fear, we also close ourselves off to the generosity that might come as a response as well. Someone saying, you know, wow, that really touches me. I feel you in a way that I, I, I never would have felt you, your humanity. And I identify with you, right? I'm also struggling. I'm also struggling. And that's a very profound gift to give to someone when we share our story. They say, I can feel your humanity and I feel more connected to you. As we near the end of David's story, I find myself thinking of one of Emily Dickinson's sonnets in which she writes, My life closed twice before its close, which I take to mean... We aren't meted out a certain amount of difficulty in measured doses. So I wonder, how does David hold these two traumas, the one that happened to him at age seven, and then the struggles of his firstborn son, who is so like him in so many ways? I see them all as one piece. The first thing I feel is that seeing my son in a way and the struggles that he's had has opened me up to be generous to my own parents in a way that I, I never would have had in any other point in my life because I can see how overwhelmed I am. And I can look back and say, wow. As I heard someone once say, I might have had a 10-gallon soul in a, you know, a couple-quart family, you know, a 10-pipe family with a 10-gallon soul. Like there's things that I just know and connect with in terms of who I was now in retrospect that I never would have. And so when I look back, I see one through line from that moment when I was seven all the way to now, which is my whole life's goal is to create a space that is safe enough to stay in the room. It's uncomfortable, but like we are strong enough to hold it. We're strong enough to hold this pain. We're strong enough to hold this truth. And that strength will set us free. It's not just that the truth will set us free. It's the truth and our capacity to hold it Right? And we can build that capacity by returning to safety, returning to the messages of love and compassion and goodness. All of those things to me are part of one seamless line from when I was seven until now, which is, you know, how do we create an environment and a container where people feel safe enough to be true, safe enough to be honest, and safe enough to heal? That's what the holy is for me. That's what the holy is for me. The quality of that, you know, running conversation that you had with God as a child, 
you know, God was your best friend. God was who you turned to. And then you went through this whole journey of becoming ultra-Orthodox and and then your decade-long quest. Is the quality of your conversation with God today in a way similar to what it was when you were a child, or has it has it changed? You know, I sometimes wish that I had that childlike ease. And it's been complicated over the years. I went through a period where I was so angry at God that the only thing I could say was I could only curse God out for a while. And I allowed myself those feelings. And I've gone through periods where I didn't believe in a personal God, or I still do. And, and you know, the face of God has changed so much for me over the years. But it hasn't eliminated that space. You know, that space to me, and it, as sophisticated as my belief in God or, you know, or my understanding of what God is, has grown as sophisticated as it has been. You know, there is still that simple place that when I close my eyes, it's not hard for me to access like the heart of a longing that I think that was something that I experienced as a child. I experienced it with my father and with the way that he sang at our, you know, on Shabbat. There was a, a pathos, a kind of, the childlike quality was not playful with God. It wasn't like, oh God, let's go for a walk through the park. You know, that would take much later on. But God was still the one that I turned to, especially in moments of pain and moments of longing and moments of yearning. And for me, it's not hard at all when I close my eyes in prayer to reaccess that place. And uh, it doesn't feel sad to me in the way that sad can be depressing. It feels alive and verdant. Like it feels like a like when I'm in that aliveness, which is a yearning, I feel very much privileged to just to be, you know, just to be. And it holds all of the hopes that I have for myself and also the hopes that I have for humanity and for the globe and for a longing for there to be peace and goodness. And so I save that place for myself when I close my eyes between me and my God. We meet there, exchanging glances over a kind of sea of, of longing for a world that we only have glimpses of, but that I pray is made manifest. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, and Bethann Macaluso is the executive producer. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Tyler Klang and Tristan McNeil. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram, at Danny Writer and Facebook at facebook.com slash family secrets pod and Twitter at fam secrets pod.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety? Struggling to find restful sleep or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com.